Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Teddy Schleifer, in this week for Peter Hamby. It is Wednesday, July 6th, and today, Tara Palmieri comes by to talk about two topics. One, her new interview with Ro Khanna, the lefty heartthrob who is saying what many members of Congress think privately about the Biden administration. And then we also talk about the succession race with Ron Klain, the White House chief of staff, who is widely expected to leave later this year. We'll hear all about that more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad Bed Cooling System is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com. Dot M-E slash powers, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. We're joined here today by Tara Palmieri, our senior correspondent in Washington. Hey, Tara. Hey, how are you? I'm good. Um, so you have a new interview up today with Ro Khanna. Um, Ro Khanna is someone who I think Everyone in Washington knows who he is. I'm based in San Francisco. He represents the district just mm-hmm. uh, south of here that includes lots of Silicon Valley. He is a fascinating political figure in, in lots of ways because he is, tell me if my shorthand here is wrong. He is a lefty, right? He's one of the kind of the leading progressives in Congress. But as I mentioned a moment ago, he also represents Silicon Valley. He is also... I don't want to, he's media savvy, thirsty. I don't know. He, he likes attention. Clearly he is ambitious. I think he's what, 40, 45, something in that, in that category, uh, in that range. And he's someone who thinks, or at least expresses candidly what the future of the Democratic party might be. And, and you have a new interview up with him today about all of these topics, just about where he sees the party headed. Let, let's just start with that. I mean, is my, is my Rokano 101? Pretty good. Yeah, it is. And actually, there was a story in Politico um, that 
top progressives are pushing him to run in 2024 if Biden doesn't seek re-election. And the thing that's interesting about Rokana is his message is, I want to share the wealth of Silicon Valley. I have one of the wealthiest districts in the country, and I want to expand the wealth, tech jobs everywhere. And he's he says in this interview, he's not running in 2024, but he's certainly building something and he's trying to show that he has a vision while also being willing to be critical of his party. He just had a big op-ed in the New York Times too, in which he gave the uh, Biden administration some advice on how to deal with inflation. And he just seems to have a lot of ideas. You know, a lot of it is fantasy football if you can't enact it yourself and it's easier to make suggestions than to enact. But at the same time, I think some of his messaging advice like always talking about the economy could be helpful for Biden. And, you know, he suggests that the government use all of its tools to buy oil when it's dipping and then subsidize it, sell it at that low rate to Americans, and that there are more tools that the transportation department could be using when dealing with airlines and that we should be more aggressive in our, um, that the president should use a bully pulpit against these oil companies and that he should be more aggressive with Congress forcing them to act, getting, trying to use the power of the Oval Office to build political will. That's some of his advice for the presidency and Joe Biden. The fact that he's writing an op-ed like this in the New York Times is sort of proves my point and, and, and I think proves your point, right? This is someone who is a believer that the Democratic Party has problems, right? And is willing to right. say these things candidly. And I wonder when you, when you read through the interview, if you're a member of Congress, like I wonder how many people read this and say, Rokan is saying what I want to say if I could say it. Totally. Even people maybe even in the Biden administration. Right. I, that's why it's like, you know, sometimes you have an interview with someone and it's a total waste of time because it's just that they're sticking to the party talking points. He's willing to, to speak candidly and to go there on some of the party's like toughest questions about like, for example, I ask him, will there be a primary if Kamala Harris runs? And he, if she ends up being the, the candidate, he's like, yeah, no one's handing it to her. He says, it'll be a huge primary, 20 or so candidates. Um, that it's, she's not the presumptive nominee if Joe Biden decides not to run. She won't be handed the ticket because she's mm. the vice president. Not a lot of people are willing to say that out loud. Yeah, that's true. I mean, people say it like in our circles, but not many members of Congress would say that out loud. Right. Have you heard them say that? No, I mean, I mean, people, people don't entertain the idea that uh, there would be, a nom- there be a, an election at all. At the same time, he says we have to support Joe Biden because he thinks that he's the person who could beat Trump. Although he says somebody else could. But if the party turns on Joe Biden, there's no way of beating Trump is, is his theory. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask, to, to, to what extent if we're using Roe as a way to think about the left more broadly? And I know we're being extraordinarily reductive and Obviously, like the left loves to eat its own. So there's fights with even within the left. But like, what grade does the left or does Roe give the Biden administration right now? Do you feel like, I know he says that he talks to the Biden administration a good bit. Surely he doesn't need to publish his thoughts in the New York Times for him to get an audience with the, the right people. But like, are things cool between kind of the left flank in, in Congress and the Biden administration right now? Or, or, I mean, it's notable that you mentioned that Roe is basically saying like, oh, yeah, we need to consolidate around Biden in 2024. Let's not humor any talk of a primary or anything like that. Um, It seems like things are hunky-dory. Yeah, for now. I think he understands that, like, if the party goes after Biden too much, that they're going to have a harder time dealing with Trump. And sometimes he talks about Trump in, like, an almost admiring way and his ability to, like, Mm. talk to people about, like, economic issues. And I think he... It's, it's interesting because a lot of the examples he uses 
when um, JFK went after the uh, steel industry and it really used the bully pulpit, like Trump did that too with a lot of industry, right? He would tweet and he would use the bully pulpit to go after the private sector. He also understands that Trump like tapped into something that he had an emotional narrative and that he's willing to say the things that a lot of Democrats think Trump did well. You know what I mean? It's hard. I mean, you don't want to praise Trump, but you acknowledge that he has some talents and that he's a formidable right. challenger, right? You can't dismiss him. And he says the party has dismissed him for too long. And to think again that he's not the biggest threat would be a mistake. He also kind of talked about his former colleague DeSantis. I was going to ask about that, right? What does he think about Ron DeSantis as a 2024 nominee? It's interesting. He thinks he's calculating okay. in terms of how he's planned his career to this point. He thinks that Biden could beat DeSantis, even though I raised the fact that there would be an age perception, right? A 40-something up against Biden would be 80-plus. And he seems to think that Biden could beat DeSantis because DeSantis doesn't have that thing that Trump has. He doesn't. He's not able to make an emotional connection with people that Trump is able to do and that Biden is able to do. He, he doesn't think that DeSantis has vision and that he's just kind of played into the cultural stuff. I've heard that privately. People say that about DeSantis, that he's kind of porcupine. He doesn't really look people in the eye, doesn't command that kind of charisma that Trump has or make individuals feel special. He's gotten better at it, at least in the donor class. But he talks the Trump talk but he doesn't really have that same uh, je ne sais quoi, you know? And I think Ro Connor sees that as well. He thinks that Trump is still formidable and that it's going to be tough to beat him and the Democratic Party has to be unified if they want to beat him. Tara, let's take a quick break and we'll be back in a second with more. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right. I found that on Etsy. It's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. 
With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be. netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. We're back here with Tara Palmieri. Um, Tara, by the way, you are in the new Puck office in Chelsea. Oh, yeah, it's really, it's amazing. Look at this beautiful view. Beautiful. Um, speaking of, of people cramped in, in, in small spaces, um, there's a lot of White House aides who are trying to deduce who will be the next chief of staff. You, you've, been, you've been reporting about this kind of iteratively for the last couple of weeks as you've been getting settled in here at Puck, been a theme of your coverage. So typically a chief of staff lasts right, about two years, right? Um, and uh, you're, you're shaking your head. Yeah, I, ballpark. I know uh, yeah. we have to adjust for the Trump era. Um, <laughs> where, I don't even remember how many there were, three, four. Um, is there any like dispute that Ron Klain will leave at some point this year? Is there any like, you know, BS, hand wavy, magic wand sort of Oasis casting here? Or does everybody believe that this is definitely going to be his last year as chief staff? Yeah, I, I haven't heard anyone say that he won't leave before after the midterms. Give me the, uh, the handicapping on who the next White House chief of staff is as, as quickly as you can. Well, Anita Dunn ran Joe Biden's campaign. Um, she was seen as someone who was really able to help it turn around. Um, and she just rejoined the White House again in April. She was a lobbyist, then a White House official, then came back again for a brief stint before the State of the Union address, then went back into lobbying and now has rejoined the White House again as of April. And, you know, the common thing that I've heard um, is that she's the successor in waiting. She's the messaging guru since she came in, they've been trying to use influencers and get Biden out there talking about the economy, just kind of making him more visible and less like trying to fight that whole like Biden's a hermit narrative because he's just not seen quite as much as Trump. You know, I'm hearing that she might not end up staying to be the chief of staff, but she could opt for softer influence and having some of her allies like Susan Rice, um, who's the National Economic Council, or Jeff Zients, who was part of COVID relief. Um, he's no longer in the White House, but, you know, um, come back. So, you know, for the same reason that Ron Klain was brought in as the former Ebola czar during the Obama administration, there's a feeling that they need some people with economic heft, right, to deal with what we're dealing with now, which is like inflationary inflation, gas prices through the roof, shortages, just kind of like kind of stuff that requires relationships with the business community and understanding of the economy and how to turn it around. So at the end of the day, Anita Dunn has made her career for the most part on influence. And she might choose to pick one of those two who are both of her allies and put them in that position, or at least advocate for them and have ties to the administration while continuing to be a partner at her very large firm, SKDK Knickerbocker, which has only expanded in influence with the Biden administration since there are so many SKDK people working there inside the administration. They'll probably even do her real, his reelection campaign if he runs for reelection. So the question is whether or not Anita Dunn herself is the chief of staff or whether or not it is an Anita Dunn ally. But 
seems like the power is consolidating around her and less around kind of the, the, the clean world, but just the associated kind of Biden old guard, old white guys, that, that collection of Steve Reschetti, Mike Donilon, Ron Klain. That's where power, power is consolidating, you think, in the second half of the Biden administration. Yeah, it almost looks like it's going to be like an Obama part due type with Susan Rice or Jeff Zients, who had they had, they came through the recession. They had these economic backgrounds right. that they're likely to be more ascendant in the uh, Biden wing. Susan Rice has gotten a lot of credit for turning around the uh, baby formula fiasco. She helped to get that Abbott Nutrition reopen its to reopen its plant in Michigan. So being the chief of staff is a pretty thankless job. And if it's his last term, Biden's last term, you don't really want to be the last person who's the chief of staff that term, right? Especially if he announces he's not running for re-election. You're pretty much in a lame duck position. But as we both have heard from all of our sources, he's saying he's going to run again until he's not, right? Until Jill Biden weighs in. (laughs) All right, Tara, we got to run. Thank you so much for coming back. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 